Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, Garrett and I just had a great interview with actually our new boss, Andy Sutton is the CEO of Ribeiro. Garrett and I are both signed on to be sales reps here and you know, really excited for this opportunity. It's, it's great products and they're at really cheap prices. Uh, you know, they sell direct to customer. They don't go through the, the middleman stores and uh, you know, that's gonna save you guys money. And if you are interested in the product, Garrett and I will both have codes uh, that you can use. Uh, if you just use my name in all caps, Giles, G-I-L-E-S, in the store, that, that gets you 5% off automatically. And then beyond that, team orders and uh, other things of that nature, there are even bigger discounts depending on you know what you're looking to do. So um, you know you can reach out to Garrett or myself anytime. Uh, my email is S-E-A-N-G-I-L-E-S at Outlook.com. Uh, Garrett, you want to give me your email real quick? Uh, you can just send it over to Sean. All inquiries can go to Sean. All inquiries can go to me. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, really excited about this. And, you know, when you get into hearing his story, you've had a 16-year pro career after really not uh, putting up great numbers in junior or the first three years of college hockey, switch from four to defense and Hearing how he got through that, I think it was just being present. He repeated it a few times. Um, being grateful is being present. So in his over his NHL career, he missed more time than any other player over the course of his career. So many injuries back to back. And, you know, he just kind of, he let go of those results. He wasn't trying to micromanage every day and he was just present. So that day he wanted to be the hardest worker in the gym. You know, that day he wanted to put in the work on the ice to get where he needed to go and it's just an incredible mindset to have and something that I think any successful person needs, whether it is in sports or, you know, now he is an entrepreneur. Garrett, what did you think of today's interview with Andy? Yeah, I'll just piggybacking off what you said. I think that's why he was successful in his NHL career. And I think that's why he's successful now with Ribeiro and every other, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thing that he's done uh, is really just his mindset and his attitude towards tackling all these challenges. I mean, we talked to him how he had injuries in 14 of 16 years like that's a lot to weigh on a person and the way that he talked about it like it wasn't negative at all he used it as fuel and you use it as motivation he talked about wearing that as a badge of honor and uh you know to be honest with you i really don't think that like mindset and attitude like that is something you can teach i think it's something that is kind of learned through going through the adversity and going through the challenges uh and realizing that if you have that attitude and that mindset uh life is a lot easier and a lot simpler that way. And it makes through going through tough times a lot easier to deal with. Uh, you know, when you're negative or complain, uh, it makes life a lot harder. And uh, it may seem like a simple thing to be able to kind of flip that switch, like, oh, I'm going to be very positive. But once you kind of get on the tracks of a negative train or, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get off of. So uh, it's something that you need to habitually practice every single day. Um, and use the the tough times and turbulence in your life as positives instead of negatives. I think that sometimes we can kind of focus on what we don't have and something, you know, simple that I've been trying to do when I do get in those negative head spaces is just kind of, you know, think about the things that I do have and the things I am grateful for. Because once you start piling that list up, it, you know, it's larger than the bad things. You know, you're worried about two or three things not going your way. But, you know, for me, I look back and I've such an incredible family and friends and, you know, the opportunities I've had with hockey, it's, it's hard for me to stay upset or, you know, be frustrated with those things I don't have at that moment when I realize everything I do have. And, you know, obviously those are going to be unique to every person, but it's just a little, a little tip that I've kind of been doing lately and it's helped my, my headspace.
I also find too, some of the things we stress and worry about, you know, in five years aren't even going to matter. And uh, usually, at least in my experiences, for the most part, things end up working out the way that they should. And a lot of times they're better than anything that we could have expected. And I think one of the hardest parts is we put expectations on what things should be right in our careers, maybe even relationships. And I think that that is something we should try to stray away from. I think it's good to have standards, but when you have expectations for what something could be or what it should be, you don't enjoy, you know, what is blossoming in front of you or what relationship is developing and accepting that person or that situation for what it really is. So trying to stay away from those expectations and really just living in the moment and enjoying the present. Yeah, he was really well-spoken and it was a really fun interview. So I don't want to keep you guys from it any longer. Let's kick it on over to Andy Sutton. Hey, everyone. We want to let you in on a tremendous opportunity. Garrett and I have recently become sales reps for Verbero, an unrivaled hockey equipment and workout apparel company. Verbero utilizes a direct-to-consumer approach that removes the middleman and drives prices lower than any other leading brand in the industry without sacrificing quality. Just one example is the gloves, which are already being worn in the NHL. Verbero's fully customized gloves with team names, team logos, player names, and numbers are only $90 a pair before the discount for using our codes. A rival competitor CCM base pair without customization is about $200 online. With over 25 former NHL players and over 20 of the top women's players within Verbero's powerful rep force, it's the only brand that is ran by people who understand the game better than anybody else. You can get an additional 5% off your entire order by using code GILES, that's all caps, G-I-L-E-S, in the checkout under discounts. Thinking about upgrading jerseys for your team? Verbero has amazing customization and can get you looking better than every other team in the league. To save even more on bulk orders, team orders, or even set up a team store, contact me on social media or my email, Giles at outlook.com. That's S-E-A-N-G-I-L-E-S at outlook.com. Today's guest is from London, Ontario. He played four years of Division I hockey at Michigan Tech and then followed that up with a 14-year NHL career. He played for seven NHL teams and also played a year of professional hockey in Switzerland. After his playing career, he is now the CEO of Verbero, an elite hockey equipment and apparel company. Thank you for joining the podcast, Andy Sutton. Hey, guys. Thanks for the time. Looking forward to chatting with you today. What was it like growing up in uh, London, Ontario, and how did you fall in love with hockey? <laughs> well, as, as you guys know, you know, growing up in Southern Ontario, you don't have much of a choice, but it's, um, you know, it was, it was definitely great. My dad and I have shared a great bond in hockey all along. And, um, you know, it, it definitely, uh, fell in love with the game through his love for the game. And then beyond that, you know, you, you work hard at something and you, you know, hopefully you're good at it and, and you, you, you have those, you know, those friendships and that brotherhood that we, we all experience in the game and it becomes an environment that you don't want to leave. And, and, um, then I was, you know, I feel like I was obviously very fortunate to be able to do it for a really long time. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a definitely a natural progression, but it was, a it was, uh, I was all hands on deck. It wasn't like I was hedging my bets with much else. Yeah. And you talk about, uh, you know, like, Within the last 10 years, I feel like hockey's really developed. And for most Canadians, you guys would usually play major junior. So, uh, you know, why did you decide to play college hockey or go, go that route? Well, to be honest with you, the, the, the choices were slim for me. You know, I was um, I was kind of a late bloomer. Like I didn't make my I didn't make my midget team despite having played AAA, you know, up, up until that point. 
Um, I went and played uh, tier two junior B in a, in a small town uh, in the, in the, what is now the PJHL and, and um, you know, was playing as a, as a 15 and 16 year old with, with guys with mustaches and jobs and, and uh, you know, really got a, got a sense of what it was like to, to play the game more as an adult um, played there for the two years. And then I just happened to, playing a summer league uh, that summer and and uh, for whatever reason there was there was a guy that was a OHL draft pick that picked a fight with me the first game and I I beat the absolute piss out of him and all the other teams happened to be watching the game so nobody came within five feet of me the rest of the tournament I think I won player of the tournament and uh, the St. Michael's buzzers coach happened to be there Dave Barrett at the time and he invited me to come and play at St. Michael's College um, which is where at the time you know Eric Lindros had come through and a bunch of other guys and it was it was arguably one of the top schools in Canada if you wanted to try to get a scholarship I never got drafted to the OHL um, so you know I had I was pretty much a free agent also saw the value in in getting an education and, and going down that road my game also needed time to evolve so you know looking back on it college was the perfect thing for me. I was, I was tall, but I hadn't like, you know, filled into my body yet. You know, I was like, I think I went to, when I went to school, I was six, six and 204 pounds. When I, when I left, I was, you know, 245 pounds and had four years under my belt and, you know, working on my game. So it was, it was uh, the kind of thing that was uh, definitely an evolution. You know, I got a scholarship as a forward and then, uh, you know, Pierre Paget came in a long time NHL coach during the lockout of 94, 95 and Randy McKay and, Jim Storm, if you guys are practicing with our team and Pierre came in and did a two week review of our club and his, his comment at the end of his two year, two week review was uh, to try Sutton at defense. So my coach at the time, Bob Mancini asked me if I was interested, this is in, you know, partway through my sophomore year and I hadn't done much of anything to that point. I said, the hell with it, let's give it a try. Um, so that year was kind of a, you know, it was definitely a, a massive adjustment. The junior year, I, I didn't do much of anything at all. I'd had a shoulder surgery the year before and, and then whatever happened that senior campaign, it, it was, um, you know, everything I kind of touched went well and, and ended up winning defensive player of the year and a WCHA all American. And I had 14 NHL teams try to sign me the day after my last game. So it was kind of a, kind of a, a dream come true, to be honest with you. It was pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, when I was looking up your, you know, elite prospects, just an insane change. Uh, three points freshman year, four points sophomore year, nine points for new year, and then you switch to defense and have 40 points in 39 games. You know, did you have a major change in your offseason training or what caused the burst of production? Well, I'll tell you, you know, and everybody, everybody thinks it's like training or it's, it's something, you know, and I've, I, what I, what I've come to realize is in my life in general, whether it's through hockey or business or my personal life, or whatever, there's a point in time where, where natural ability has to take over and faith of like where you're supposed to be in, in life has to take over because the more we fight things and the more we try to manufacture things, the, the more we try to exert control over something that's probably out of our control. So it was probably the time where I said, you know what, the hell with this, I'm going to give it one last kick at the can. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to let go and see where this goes. And, um, you know, that's got to, that's got to coincide certainly with like being in physical, you know, physically good shape opportunity the coaching staff has to embrace it and give you ice time which I was able to earn I think and then and then make the most of but at the same point in time like 
I didn't, uh, I didn't worry about the future. I wasn't regretting anything about the past. I was present in, in that moment. Just, just, uh, you know, really honestly, just, just enjoying what was left of that because I didn't know what was going to be around the bend. I never assumed there was going to be pro like uh, pro hockey for me, um, around the bend. And, and I would, I would never thought I would have lasted as long as I did. So it's, um, I don't know, it's all kinds of kind of a, you know, all those roads lead to Rome type of thing, but it was, uh, it was definitely, uh, I was right where I was supposed to be that year and things were definitely um flowing very freely was that like a present mental change that you try to do where you told yourself like hey like i'm just going to be present not going to worry about things i can't control um or do you think that it just kind of naturally happened and then as you look back hindsight's always 2020 you realize that that is what had happened or like you were maturing as a person as a human going through your you know college education all that stuff and the pieces just kind of fit together or is it like a you know like a switch that you flipped like hey I'm not worrying about it, taking a day at a time type of thing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's always that what comes first, the chicken or the egg thing, right? If you think about it, because what, what comes first, you have to have success to be able to let go and be present, or do you choose to be present? And then, you know, if success is meant for you, then maybe that's what's meant for you. And, and, and I think it's, I think it's the, the former, I think you have to let go first. I think you have to let go of results. You have to let go of expectation. Um, and I think you have more than anything, you have to be present because if you think about it, and whether it's like you think about a pro golfer for as an example and all the lamenting they do over every shot versus when they go out and play with their buddies and shoot 62 in bare feet, you know, with six Coronas, you know, in, in their body. And I'm not saying that that's the answer, but I'm saying there is a space like where I think where you've let go and you trust your innate ability because we've all spent the time, you know, we've all shot 10 million pucks or Garrett, in your, in your, say in your uh, case, you've made 10 million saves, you know, you've invested the hours, um, so you have the raw ability to the highest degree it's possible for you is really only extracted, I think, when you're able to process in your deep subconscious mind, because, you know, you can process, you know, 10,000 times more thoughts per second there. So to try to overly micromanage it, you're spending a lot of time in a processor side of your brain that is only able to process a few thoughts at a time versus being able to subconsciously analyze the game in a, in a way that that allows you to move faster and think quicker than other people. Yeah, in a sense, too, me and Sean always heard it from a young age, like process over outcome. And for a long time, we didn't want to believe that. But I've come to the realization that what you kind of dive into the process and don't really worry about the outcome, life is honestly, you know, it's easier to go through. It's much more enjoyable when you focus on the everyday task and you talk about being present. I find those coincide with each other um, when you're focusing on that, you know, everyday activity or being at the rink, being with your teammates or in the weight room, if you're just there present, it's just, it makes life a thousand times more enjoyable in my opinion. Oh my God. Doesn't it like, and, and to that point, like even just thinking about, about being, about being grateful, right. And then giving thanks to, to that moment, that opportunity, because you, you, especially if you're as lucky as, as, as we were to play, you know, play professional hockey or you're still playing, like to be thankful for that, that, that you're able to do that. I mean, that's just, it's so incredible. Right. And so what, like you said, whether you're in the, whether you're in the weight room or you're waiting for the bus or you're whatever it is, or you get to put on a suit and, you know, go to a game, it's like, you know, you've got to be grateful for those moments. I think expressing gratitude and, and acknowledging that you're grateful ensures that you're present because if you can be grateful for the moment like like we're all grateful to be speaking right now i'm not spending time in what i got to do later or my you know my kids that are in the next room and you know I'm taking them to the wave pool later or whatever like you don't i don't need to think about that right now because right now is all we is all we have and i think that starts with gratitude 
hundred percent. It's very well put. And, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned and touched on it, but you didn't know if you'd play professional hockey. So I guess, you know, as younger versions of ourselves, we all dream of playing in the NHL. So was your goal always to play in the NHL? And did you have opportunities to leave school early or did you want to graduate with your degree first? Well, you know, I think, I think like any kid, especially, you know, kids from Ontario and I, you know, I was born in the mid seventies and I think things were very much a certain way back then. And I think, you know, the, the, the enamorment with the, uh, you know, with the NHL and stuff like that, being a player was probably on steroids back then. Cause it was, you know, I think that there wasn't, a, there wasn't many distractions. There wasn't Facebook and Instagram and all the stuff that kids are wrapped up in today. So I, I, I always had a dream of it. I never really, I, maybe in my, in my deep mind, like I, I, I thought it was a possibility and I just, I, I, I couldn't quite put it together until I put it together. Um, you know, so in that in that regard, I guess it was always present in my mind. So when I was in the gym and at school, as much as I was studying hard, and this is back to being present again, if I was in the weight room, I was going to be the hardest working guy in the weight room. If I was on the ice, I was going to practice with purpose and be on the ice. I always had a chip on my shoulder, and I think that helped me a lot in hockey in general and maybe life. And then I did have other opportunities, you know, and it's funny because there's always these forks in the road and, and looking back on them now, you can see how your life is a series of sliding doors, right? So my junior year was lackluster. I'd had a shoulder surgery and then I played the whole year with my shoulder pads strapped to the top of my pants because I kept dislocating my shoulder and, you know, I got that repaired and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was I was given an offer by the U.S. Navy to come in and intern in, in D.C. for the summer as I studied engineering at school. And for whatever reason, I thought to myself, you know what, I got one last kick at the can and I stayed on campus for that summer. I worked there and stayed with two of my two of the players from the team. And and we we trained hard. Sure. I mean, we all, we always trained hard and we had fun. And and uh, I think I just again, probably back to prison, like, look, I'm, I might have only one year of this left and I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy the heck out of this and, and see what falls out the other side. So I turned down the opportunity and, and, um, you know, gave this a, a go. And, and during that time, I, I allowed myself to think like how I wanted to manage that year. You know, I've every, in the, whether it was in the gym or in my free time, I, and I thought to myself, you know what, I want to do this last year here without stress. Like I want to, I don't want to stress myself out. I want to, I want to go out and just play with my heart. I want to go out like a kid on the street and just, and just try those things that, that I know are inherently in me to make, make sure that I'm a, that I'm as unique as I can be out there and playing, you know, playing my true game without trying to overly manufacture something for somebody else. And and it you know what it worked. I don't know if it, if it was like des- destined to work or or how that all works, but it, it 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 was definitely something that made sense to me, and it definitely translated into my play on the ice. So I think you know that was a big big moment for me and the realization that I could trust myself. Um, and then I, I really, you know, got challenged on that dozens of times during my, my long pro career. And, and looking back on that now, every time there were those situations, the ways in which I got out of them was to, was to let go because the, the worst thing in the world when you're, when you're fighting for something and it's not happening naturally is to fight harder. And you see so many players will be like, I'm spending extra time in the gym. I'm spending extra time on the ice. When really what you should probably do is figure out how to decouple, how to, how to drop the backpack full of bricks, you know, the, the stuff that's weighing you down in your mind, because it's, it's, it's exponentially more difficult to be present if you're, if you're carrying stuff from the past. And, you know, somebody told me once if you're, you know, if you have regret remorse, 
in your mind, you're living in the past. And if you have fear and anxiety in your, in your heart and in your gut, you're living in the future. And both, both times you're not, you're not present. You're not fully present. So you're supposed that peaceful feeling is supposed to go right through you from top to bottom. And that's the space where I think you're optimized for performance. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, being present, like you said, those extra 15 minutes on the ice, you can really accomplish a lot over the course of a season because you add up all those practice days and, you know, if you stay out 15 minutes later than the other guys, it's going to add up to a lot of hours at the end of the year. And some of those little details can definitely help you out. But I also agree that, you know, sometimes you can do too much and overthink it. So it seems like you definitely found that right mindset. And maybe this is, a, that is the answer to my next question. But uh, I was going to say, it's one thing to make the NHL, but it's a completely different story to play 14 years in the league. So once you arrived at the pro level, what do you think separated you to make you a career player in the best league in the world? Well, you know, it, it ended up being 16 years and it was all said and done because I did have a lockout year and then I I didn't, I got paid my last year in 13-14 and never, never played a game because uh, I had a, a basically a career-ending knee injury. And and I, you're right, I mean, it's, it's impossible to make it. It really is. I mean, it's such a small percentage of players that make it just even to play a game or get, have a cup of coffee and then just to stay as long as I did. I mean, I... I can't even, I honestly can't believe it if I really think about it, you know, because there were, there were, there were so many challenges along the way. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. You know, there was always something that you're dealing with when you're playing at the highest level. And I had 14 surgeries over a 16 year period. I I missed more games due to injury than any other player over the course of, of the time that I spent in the league. Um, you know, I had, I had over 25 fractures, you know, I had, uh, I had a million soft tissue injuries. I mean, I literally was always injured. So I, you know, was always fighting that trying to restore to my full self. And then you're trying to jump in. And a lot of times when guys are at, you know, full game speed and you come off of a long-term injury, it was really hard, you know, and then the, you know, trades and, you know, ma ma managing your life in the game and balancing that with a healthy lifestyle and everything like that. It's a, it's a lot. So, I mean, looking, looking back on it, um, it was definitely, uh, definitely a, a battle zone you know but at the same point in time it's the kind of stuff that makes you intrinsically and fundamentally a stronger and better person and I, I think that that's the piece that i extract the most you know i have great memories amazing experiences um i feel really lucky to have been able to do what i do and then beyond that it sort of forged some characteristics that i carry forward in my life now that i that i still i think still help me to this day it's one of the biggest reasons I love sports, but hockey in general is I feel like, yeah, like it's a game and we enjoy playing it. And, but for me, the biggest thing is just the life lessons that it teaches you. Like, as you can attest going to college, like you learn so many things that I think, you know, you probably wouldn't have learned if you would have played in the OHL or experiences that you would have gone through that are, you know, better suiting you for life now or better suiting you for your life when you were, you know, playing professional sports. But one of my questions is, you know, as those injuries continue to build and build and build, how did you stay with it? Like, how did you stay dedicated to your rehab? Did you ever have thoughts of like, you know, this might be it for me because long-term injuries take a lot of time and investment to get back to where you were before. And I've been there before, not 14 and 16 years. I don't know if I can handle that, but over time, it's just kind of like, man, like I'm hurt again. I got to, you know, recover again. And then once you're back in it, you're like, hopefully I don't get hurt again. So how did you kind of stay in that for so long with so many back-to-back -back injuries like that? Well, I think in a lot of ways, I sort of wore it like wore it as a badge of honor, you know, because I, I was known for, you know, blocking shots and playing hard and, and um, I sacrificed myself. And I think my, my teammates and the teams I played for always respected that, you know, so like it became almost like part of my identity. And then beyond that, like 
you know, when, when you're fortunate enough to play there and they're paying you good money and, and that's part of the process to restore, uh, I, I, I took it as a big part of my job, you know, to just to make sure that I did everything I could to get back to my full self. And then I, I think I use it as like a constant challenge to, to see if I can do it, you know, like, and, and I, I had so much energy for that, you know, I'm a little more tired now. I definitely left a lot of energy on the table, but I think, um, you know, you, you're in it and you're being paid well and you're, um, you're expected to do it and you have, you know, your team and your family and, and, and fans that, that, uh, you know, want things from you and, and, um, and in that regard, like you got you got a tremendous responsibility there. So it's it definitely a part and parcel of all those things. And then uh, I think just, um, you know, it, it led me to an education of, of my mind, certainly how I think about things. And then even in, you know, in my, in my body and, and in my, you know, attempts for, to do to supplement, you know, things with, with the right foods or, you know, nutritional supplements or whatever I needed to do to get there, the right kinds of advanced, you know, training techniques, ART, soft tissue work and acupuncture or, or whatever I was going to do to, to try to fix the thing. And it's kind of, uh, I just kind of dove into that and, and, and really tried to understand as much as I could about those things, which I think in the end was a, was another great education that I was able to extract from. So just like changing the mindset, you know, again, back to presence, like focusing on the process. And I worked with so many amazing like rehab people over the years, both in the team and outside the team that I carved out great relationships with. And, um, you know, it led, led me to, I own, a, I own a brand called Jomo, it's jomo.com, but it's a, it's an inflammation management product. It's a nutritional supplement really centered around joint health. And um, I was, I, I took that product about three years before I retired. It was the first entrepreneurial thing I did when I left the game. I, I worked with the previous owner and ended up buying the brand from him and reformulated it and still, you know, still, still sell and manage that brand today and still take Jomo every day. Cause I think it's one of the greatest products on the market for making sure that you, that you keep moving. So it's all, it's all, uh, all roads lead to Rome. I know I said it earlier, but it's, it's the truth of the matter. Yeah, I like that you're using uh, your experiences here to help help people. And uh, obviously, it continues to help your life. And you obviously are big on that. But it's cool that you're trying to, you know, use it to help other people too. And hopefully it does. Uh, but going back to your career a little bit, you weren't drafted in the entry draft, but you were selected in the expansion draft by the Minnesota Wild. And I'm not sure if they did protected lists the same way they are now, uh, like with Vegas and Seattle. But, you know, you mentioned you had a chip on your shoulder, but did that put a bigger chip on your shoulder uh, when your team left you unprotected for the expansion draft? Well, I, I kind of knew it was going to happen. You know, there were a few events and this was like back to, you know, the San Jose days where I started and coming in. The game was very different in the late 90s. You know, you, you had to get to 32 years old to become an unrestricted free agent. So you had to play in some instances like, you know, maybe 14 years before you could decide where you want to play. So there was a lot of respect and even value for for veteran players so when I came in to the Sharks I assumed that that I that I should be playing you know ahead of the Brian Marchments and Bob Rouses and Jeff Nortons and Gary Suiters of the world and Mike Rathje and Marcus Ragnarsson and, and I and that was not the case you know Daryl Sutter was not the kind of coach to you know to promote somebody just because they thought they were you know should should be the one playing so I you know I had I, I had that chip on my shoulder and and remember I had an exchange with Dean Lombardi the GM at the time and I knew I was out of there just based on the way it went down um, you know and when they exposed me uh, I was I was hopeful and then getting a, you know getting a chance to go in there and and start from scratch with an organization that was starting from scratch was really good timing getting to go in there and play under you know Jacques Lemaire was was insane in retrospect and and you know and again you're I'm confronted Jacques tried to turn me back into a forward 
I had a fundamental, I had a fundamental feeling in my, in my mind and my body that I wasn't meant to be a forward. And I went to Mike Ramsey, um, you know, obviously he's a pr pretty, a pretty incredible and established person in, in the game. And, and I said, Hey Mike, I really think I'm meant to be a defenseman in this league. And he looked me square in the face and he said, it's not ever going to happen. You'll never be a defenseman in the NHL. Well, that was it. You know, that, that was another line in the sand. And I went in the next day uh, to Doug Riseborough, right? Another massive legend in the game, the GM at the time. And I said, Doug, I, I, I understand what you guys want me to do here. And I don't think it's the road to a, a long career for me. And if, if you're able to, I'd really appreciate it if you'd trade me somewhere that would want me as a defenseman, because I really believe fundamentally that's what I'm meant to be in this league. And he was kind enough to trade me to Atlanta. I think it was about seven days later. And, and that's kind of where things really started to take shape for me. Wow. That's talk about sticking with your guns. Huh? You know, the NHL organization that takes you in the draft tells you they want something else. And, you know, you knew what you wanted and it, it definitely paid off. Uh, is that the same Mike Ramsey who was on the 1980 Olympic team? You know? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I've never had a chance to reconnect with them on that, you know, and, I, and look at the, at the time, I, I probably understood more in my heart of hearts than maybe he saw, right? He may, maybe he certainly probably saw something different than what I had conveyed, which is maybe why they started to think about turning me into a forward. And, and look, I, I now I'm just thankful for it. Right. It, it was, it was the type of thing that gave me uh, additional fuel to, to go and prove, prove to everybody that I could do otherwise. Right. So, you know, getting into Atlanta and getting them to give me a chance. And then it really, it really was, you know, in Atlanta that, that I was able to, to really, you know, carve out my, my niche. You know, I was, I was put in a position there when Bob Hartley got there to play 30 minutes a night against the top, top players in the world. And, and regardless of what ha would happen out there, I was put in those positions and, and I again was able to prove to myself that I could do it. So from there, I think I, I was able to gain some notoriety. And I think that, you know, was allowed me to carve out my identity to a deeper degree and wasn't trying to, you know, trying to fight every game and wasn't certainly wasn't trying to play forward and doing things that I think confused the messaging. So I finally, I think had an identity that was meaningful. And, and at, at that point, you know, anybody that's trying to build a team wants to know what they're getting and who they're getting and what they're going to bring to the table. So I think I was a lot more, uh, they could trust in, in the player they were going to get a, a lot more after that point. Yeah, and I think a lot of people outside the game don't understand how different you have to approach the game in different positions. You know, obviously a goaltender is playing a very different game than a steady defenseman who's playing a very different game than a forward who's always trying to crash the net. And so you had that experience, you know, in college of doing both. And, you know, you probably felt more comfortable playing a steady game, you know, moving the puck up to the forwards and shutting down the other team rather than focusing on scoring goals. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and I, I took a lot of pride in it too, you know, like I love that. I love, I love being able to, I love being able to, you know, play against the other team's top players and then to shut them down. It was such a tangible, you know, for, and then to know that you're going to be put out the next shift, regardless of what happens is, is that, that piece, that little bit of security where you're like, okay, I can just go out and trust my instincts and play. And then the other thing that I found was that, you know, the top offensive players usually cheat more. So, you know, and I was, I was quick back then, especially in a straight line and, you know, I could jump in and join the play and, you know, and you had, you had opportunities to generate some points too. And I was, you know, even able to play a bit of power play there. So it was, it was kind of a place where it, it all kind of married together. And then I really was able to, to create a much more solid identity. Yeah, this is, you guys kind of got my brain turning a little bit, but this is kind of a weird thought or question, but I wonder if you could link like personalities to certain positions in hockey. Like if there's certain uh, personalities that people have where they're, they're more likely to play goalie, 
or defense or forwards. We don't really have to dive into that, but something I thought of when you two were talking about that with, you know, having a different mindset and how you approach the game. Well, you really can, you know, and we're, you know, at Rivero, we're partnered with a, with a company called Elite Junior Profiles. And an elite junior profiles is essentially, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, maybe elite prospects is also a partner of ours, allow you to up upload data surrounding your, you know, your statistics. But then elite junior profiles has a, has a proprietary system where they essentially quantify the intrinsic value uh, values that players have. And they, they generate a, a disc rating and have all kinds of other metrics they put in place to, to identify those types of attributes and characteristics so it's it, it is something that, that is starting to be done and and it is available uh, through elite junior profiles you just have to be crazy to play goalie right g i don't know if i'm that crazy and some people say it like i'm pretty normal for a goalie so i kind of take pride in that um obviously that puts me in a category of like being a little weird but the fact that people say i'm normal makes me feel good yeah, normal's normal's not normal's not that normal. So I mean, I think we're, and I think we're all a little weird, especially these days. We're probably all a little weirder than we've ever been. So I think uh, true. Uh, I think nor normal is uh, normal is a funny thing to call somebody. Absolutely. Well, you had a weird year. Uh, Two thousand four, the NHL had a lockout, which forced all the players, you know, travel around the world to find a place to play and find a job. You opted to spend the year in Switzerland. Uh, what was the process like finding a team over there, and how was that experience playing overseas? Oh, it was it was great. You know, I, I had a, a good friend of mine, Randy Robitaille, who I played in Atlanta with. We became real good buddies. And, uh, you know, Roby decided at that time to go over there and really make a life, make a life of playing in Europe. And he was playing, I think he was top scorer the year before and on the team in Zurich. And I went in to, just to visit him and, um, you know, happened to be right around the same time. They were making some decisions and it didn't look like the NHL was going to go forward. And I met with the team when I was there and and um, I liked what I saw, you know, it seemed like a great opportunity and the, you know, the, uh, the experience itself was, was worth it, you know, just to go and play in that environment and have that experience. And uh, so I, I signed on and flew back, I think a couple of weeks later and spent the whole year there. It was, it was one of the highlights of my career, quite honestly, because I mean, there's nothing I could do about what was happening in the NHL and to go there and, and be able to, to play at, at that level and enjoy that experience in, the, in that country and tour it around. I mean, it wasn't a, there wasn't a day went by I never sat in front of the TV and, and killed time. You know, if I had time, I was driving somewhere to check something out and do something. I left every penny I made over there, but that's, that's another story. You know, we had a, <laughs> we had a fantastic time and it was, uh, it was re really uh, a wonderful experience getting to, getting to uh, partake in the, in the European hockey. And you had, as we mentioned, a, a long career. You, you said 16 years over, you know, when it was all said and done. And unfortunately, the game ends for everyone. But you found some incredible entre entrepreneurial opportunities. Uh, now you're the CEO of Ribeiro, a hockey equipment apparel company that is on the rise and already being used by NHL players. So how did you discover this opportunity and what was the transi transition like out of playing the game and now helping the next generation playing at their best? Well, I mean, I won't, I won't sugarcoat it. The transition was hard. You know, I, I didn't uh, I didn't start out doing this. You know, I, I when I when I first left the game, I was I was in the process of of creating intellectual property in the protective space. I studied engineering at school, and with all the injuries, I I thought of a, a bunch of better ways to protect players. And I and I got some intellectual property and started to work to license that um, with some of the big companies. And was you know about three years down the road with with uh, Easton, you know, before they were consumed by, uh, by Bauer and, and lost, lost a good bit, bit of work. And at that time, 
I went and worked for a multi-brand hockey company and I was served as acting president there for four and a half years. And I invested in the business, um, you know, and there were some acquisitions that occurred while I was there. I, I partnered and, and bought 50% of the interest in the First Star brand. It's uh, formerly a Canadian apparel brand. And then while I was there, uh, Verbero was an acquisition as well. So, you know, I had an opportunity sort of right at the start of COVID to, you know, really take a look at the entire, you know, asset and investment portfolio. And I was able to, to call the, uh, you know, to call the investments back. And I left the First Star brand behind and I was able to take the Verbero brand with me. Verbero had, you know, paid into the NHL for three years. They had players like uh, Cam Atkinson and others using, uh, using the gloves and, and, um, you know, so there was some notoriety there. That being said, I wanted to do everything differently. So I took the best of the best uh, of the assets from, from Berbero. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we have the only full carbon fiber skate. It's carbon fiber all the way up to the top of the tendon guard, all the way to the, to the tip of the uh, eyelet facings. Um, and it really is one of the most exquisite skates on the market. And we're in a redevelopment process right now to relaunch that skate with, with some absolutely incredible additions to it. It'll be a, it's gonna be a real pioneering skate. I brought in a stick that I had been working on while I was working at this other company uh, with a vendor that that was making what is now the Merc 350, the lightest stick on the market at 350 grams. Um, we've got an amazing stock glove and pant. We inherited the Shield Series products, so you know the shoulder pads are worn by almost 30 NHL players. And then we've got uh, Braden Holtby who wears the padded shirt still, and we don't don't pay him to wear it. He wears it just because it's an awesome product. And we inherited that with the brand, um, and then I. I had always wanted to do team sales differently. And I always wanted to challenge the status quo because the model's broken. The top brands don't make any money. They've got it all backwards. Um, they allow they allow their sales reps, you know, territorial exclusivity, which which breeds laziness. I wanted to I wanted to obliterate that. So we tripled the industry standard commission rate and we allow our reps to build their own sub rep forces. So they can work with their best friends and colleagues. You can hustle as hard as you want. You can bring in team sales. You can bring in individual sales. You can build your own rep force and have your own business inside my business. And then um, I wanted to make sure we checked some other boxes too, because the you know the apparel, the game wear, custom bags, and really the custom side of the business was lacking. And there isn't a hockey brand in my mind that's that's satisfied the demand from top to bottom. So we we built a proprietary software system that allows us to create team stores for our brand partners, and you know all of our products are there. I bought an apparel manufacturing facility because I wanted to have control and I wanted to make sure that the, the goods were top tier. You know, I started by sending my favorite Lululemon and Travis Matthew G4 products because I really wanted the, the products to be stuff that I'd want to wear, not just like me too products. And then the team store really makes the products available to our teams and affiliates 24 seven, 365. And then we put some really aggressive, um, programs in place there. You know, we've got volume discounts for people that buy, and then we also kick back 10% to the association itself on, on team store purchases. So grandma buys a hoodie, dad gets a quarter zip, you know, the player goes in and buys his gloves and sticks, whatever it is, the association gets 10% of that back to the association. So we've really got um, what I would consider a highly cohesive ecosystem. You know, we've got over 350 reps now. And to put that in context, uh, pre-COVID, Bauer had 50 worldwide. So we've got, you know, seven times the amount of reps that Bauer has. And we're growing like crazy. And the team store is uh, is definitely a conduit. You know, the, the teams, leagues, and associations are coming to us in a big way because we've solved a lot of problems, getting things in one place, buying them at the right price, having top quality goods without compromise, working with a, a rep or somebody that they trust really well. 
that rep in some instances has support of another rep that maybe brought he or she in. Uh, and then you've got the branding behind that, my, you know, my name and face behind it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of credibility attached to one, you know, one product, one purchase, one account. Um, and in that regard, I mean, there's nobody that'll be able to compete with us because nobody can do this. And we're growing, we're growing like crazy. Our rep force is compounding weekly. Our team accounts are coming in weekly and, and, and I don't see any end in sight. Uh, what direction do you see Verbero heading over the next few years and into the future? Obviously, you know, you're trying to push a lot of standards, uh, you know, maybe 10 years down the line. Do you think that it's something that, you know, a lot of NHL players are going to be wearing? Well, here's the, here's the deal for me. You know, the, the other, that's the other thing too. The other brands have a top down marketing strategy. So they, they pay into the NHL because they assume that because stuff's in the NHL, that's why players are going to want to buy it. Um, I think that worked for a long time. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think, I think the, I think the industry changed. I think you look at people and the way they buy through Amazon or, you know, they buy through Instagram, all these direct to consumer companies. That's the way people shop now. Um, and we, we don't see any change in that. So for me, I, I look at, I look at this a day at a time. What can I, what can I do today to apply my full self to this? How can I make this better for tomorrow? And I'll just do that every day and, and, you know, see where this all shakes out because we are, we are growing rapidly and I'm focusing on supporting that growth and the products are saw rock solid. So I've invested the time on product already. Now it's a matter of insulating the service side, insulating our reps so that we can do what we say we're going to do when they bring in an account. Um, and then, you know, our account partners, making sure we can deliver, you know, top quality goods on time without compromise. So, I mean, that's, that's my focus. And then where it's, where it all shakes out in the end, I have no doubt will be a, will be a magical place. And, uh, I don't, I don't know what the end is, is just yet. Yeah. We're, we're really excited about it. And it sounds like it's a great opportunity and obviously you have experience in the field. Uh, but what advice do you have for anyone who works in sales or wants to, you know, start their journey as an entrepreneur? Well, I, th I think the first first thing to do is 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 address you know your your passions and your opportunity, right? You got to look at those two things. Beyond that, the, the the best start is getting started. You know, I Rome's not building a day. I know I keep saying it, and like honestly, if I had tried this five years ago, it would have never worked. When I tried to start an equipment company coming out of the game, it, it didn't it didn't work. It wasn't the right timing, it wasn't the right product, it wasn't the right opportunity you've got to just push, you've got to push, you've got to push every day. And then you also need to make sure that you're, that you're aware of, of the, um, of the, of the, the direction you're given because the universe will direct, direct you. You'll, you'll, you'll understand resistance and what that feels like, because truth, truthfully, you know, you have to work hard without a doubt, but that's on some level there are, you can't push water uphill. So you've got to trust, you've got to trust those instincts and trust that those, those feelings. And then I think beyond that, like once you isolate on, on something that people want to hear, which means they want to buy it, you've got to figure out the best way to communicate to those people, support them, make them feel like they're part of the family. And then outside of that, it's just, it's just rinse, repeat, you know, the, in the end, it's a great product, but the, the support, the, the brotherhood that you, that you build inside your, the fraternity you build inside of your business, whether that's a, you know, you're a, you're a sole proprietor, you're running a podcast, you're selling a product, you're part of a brand. You've got to you've got to you've got to carve out your identity and you've got to support that with sort of ritualistic activity and that and then you've really got to support it with passion because in the end passion begets passion if, if i'm not passionate about it i can't inspire other people so and then in the end i believe everything is about sales so you've got to inspire people to want to 
you got to know your elevator pitch. You've got to understand the product inside out and backwards. You've got to be relentless. Um, and then you've got, you've got to basically, you know, put, put that on repeat every day and inspire people to, to get involved. So that's what it's about in the end. And, you know, entrepreneurial road is a lonely road because you spend a lot of time, you know, working away and, and you celebrate the little victories because there's, there's so much work that goes into being an entrepreneur. People need to understand how much, how much work there is. Nothing's, nothing's given. Um, and, and definitely not when you're, when you're trying to carve out something from scratch. Well, Andy, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, amazing to hear about your career and I learned a lot of things I didn't even know about you. I can't believe that you went through that many injuries and had to switch from forward to D in college. That kind of blows my mind if I was put in those same shoes. But, um, you know, your mindset through all of it has been incredible and really inspiring and, you know, really excited to be working together. Yeah, likewise, Sean. And I appreciate the time as well, you guys. And I, I think, you know, on, on behalf of the pod, if anybody's interested in getting involved, you know, we, we, we signed the pod on as a partner and, you know, you guys should, you guys should join, uh, join Sean Garrett and let, let them, let them direct you, you know, become a, become a rep, you know, jo join the, join the team and, and figure out how you can, you can carve out a piece of a barrel for your, for yourself. So I think that's a great opportunity for anybody that's listening. Anybody has any questions more specifically, they can direct anything to team at verbero.com that comes into our executive team and we can answer any questions that anybody might have. And um, I appreciate the time guys and looking forward to the future. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of adversity university. You can follow more news about Aversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is Aversity underscore University. Our Twitter handle is Aversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Aversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.